Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Savini. I am the lead pastor at Asbury, and hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I hope it will also be entertaining and maybe just a bit surprising as we go along. Let's dive in. We are we are talking about Leviticus, but I'm not going to I'm not really going to deal with specific verses or passages in Leviticus because it's a book that's kind of difficult to do that with, if, if I'm being honest. Um, unless we want to talk about like uh, specific sins or the intricacies of the sacrificial system. But what I want to do is actually sort of expand on some things I dealt with in my sermon this past Sunday, which was on. I focus on two particular sacrifices which are described at the beginning of Leviticus in chapters 3 and 4. One of them is uh, the peace offering and the other is the sin offering. And, and I, I told you on Sunday if you were here and, and listened to me preach that really a better word for those would actually be the fellowship offering and the purification offering. Because of course the point of the, of the peace offering or fellowship offering is that you are symbolically sharing a meal with God. It's meant to. It is meant to be a time of fellowship between you and God. And then the point of the the sin offering, or what I'm calling the purification offering, is actually not to atone for the guilt of your sin, or to repent of your sin, or to or or maybe more importantly, it's not to earn God's forgiveness via a sacrifice. The point of that offering is to purify the sanctuary, the worship space, from the consequence of your sin. And I want to talk about sin. Because if we're in Leviticus, if you're reading along with our Bible reading plan, you're reading Leviticus, I'm going to be preaching on it this week and next week, and then after that, I'm still going to preach on Numbers and Deuteronomy for a little bit, and there's going to be a lot of sin talk. And this can be kind of a problem for some people, because um, you know some people don't ever want to hear about sin in church. It sounds too Baptist. It sounds too... Uh, fundamentalists to talk about sin a lot, and, and it, or it sounds too fire and brimstoney, right? And, and people, it just doesn't feel right for a lot of folks, especially if, if you grew up in the Methodist tradition in the United States. Um, you know, that's not a very sin-focused message, and there's good reason for that, as we'll about, we're going to discover, because a, a lot of the the talk about sin, particularly in the Western Church in the last century or so. And, well, probably longer than that, really, to be honest, uh, has misunderstood or misrepresented how the Bible actually deals with sin, particularly in the book of Leviticus. And there's been this deep misunderstanding of purity as well, and, and the purity language and the purity rituals involved in the Old Testament. And we'll start there. Because that, that purity language, when it's misunderstood, when it's misused, can, can really cause a lot of problems. The, the purity culture uh, that, that sort of sprung up in the evangelical church in the last latter, latter half of the 20th century is a huge problem. Uh, as, as you can see, if you watch any of the documentaries on the, on the you know, massive 
sex abuse scandals that have gone on in some of the major evangelical movements, which very often seem to have happened in the uh, most purity-focused movements. So there's a problem there when we, when we, when we take this language of purity in, in the Old Testament and try to apply it to ourselves. Because the thing is, here, here's what's important. All the stuff about purification and purity in Leviticus, that's not about making you pure. It's not about making the people pure, making me pure, or any of that. No, 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 no. It's about making the temple pure, or the tabernacle, right? Because they aren't yet in the temple. It's about making the worship space pure. And the, and the point of this... Sorry about that. We got interrupted a little bit. Um, the point of all of the purity stuff is to enable God's presence to be in the midst of the people of Israel so that God can be there with them. And the, um, the effect of sin is like a contaminant. Right? Sin is always linked with death. And Death cannot continue to exist in the presence of the God who gives life. It's antithetical. It's like matter and antimatter. So if, if the contaminant of sin continues to stay around in the sanctuary, it's going to be destructive for God's presence to be there. Not destructive to God, but destructive to the people. And so the purity rituals are there to make it safe for the people to enter into the presence of their holy God. And so many of these, these offerings that get labeled as sin offerings in Leviticus are really purification offerings. Because if you pay close attention and you read, actually, you know, I know it's hard to pay attention when you read through Leviticus. But when you pay close attention as you're reading through it, you will notice that all of these offerings deal with accidental sins. There are later things that deal with like the punishments that are meant to be dealt out to intentional sinners, like, like murderers, rapists, thieves, that kind of thing. But all the sacrifices that you offer for sin are, are to deal with accidental sins, sins you didn't mean to do, or you weren't aware that you were doing them, or they happened purely by mistake. These are not offerings which are meant to pay the price for your sin. These are not offerings which are meant to cover up the guilt or to buy God's forgiveness. They are meant to deal with the contamination of sin. They wash away the consequences of it. Now there is an atonement offering, a, a sacrifice that is meant to actually atone for, pay the price for your sins. That's different. But all these purification offerings, all these sin offerings, they wash away the contamination of sin. The atonement offering, right? This happens on uh, this happens on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And what happens then is you get two goats. Now we've talked about this before, right? You have the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is the one where they symbolically lay all of their sin on that goat and drive it off into the wilderness. Take their sin away. 
So it works a bit different. So all these offerings where they're killing these animals, these sin offerings, they are, they are about washing away the consequence of their sins. This should give us a bit of a different perspective on what sin is and why it matters and why it's important for us to identify sin. Because it's not about guilt. It's And, and this is where I'm going to get myself into trouble with a lot of evangelicals. And I'm an even, I am an evangelical, but, but this, listen, I'm going to get in trouble here. Dealing with the consequences of sin is not about avoiding hell. It's not about going to heaven. It has nothing to do with the afterlife. Read through Leviticus, read through Deuteronomy, you will not notice anything in there about the eternal consequences of sin. Now, that doesn't mean they don't exist. That doesn't mean that there is no afterlife. It doesn't mean that, that there are not people who will be forever separated from God because they chose not to live a righteous life. It means that all these things dealing with the consequence of sin, all these rules about it, focused on this life because sin has consequences here and now it does things to us and to the world around us here and now and this is actually why sin matters right god will god is merciful and forgiving and gracious all of us will die as sinners right? there is no one who is going to spend eternity with jesus who is not guilty of sin So the answer to the question, why can't we all just, you know, live the life we want and then ask for God's forgiveness on our deathbed, is that sin has consequences right here and right now. It affects the world we live in. It isn't just a hypothetical, it isn't just something that's going to happen down the line. Sin affects us. Now there are obvious... There's some things where, where, you know, yes, of course, very clear that this is going to cause us problems, right? If you are married and you're being unfaithful to your wife, which is a sin, it's going to affect your marriage, right? Um, but look at what Jesus does in the Gospels, right? He takes all those laws and then says, look, look, it's not actually just linked to your actions, but what, but your intentions are sinful as well, because that will still have effects, right? If you are married and you're looking at other women with lust in your heart, your marriage will suffer. If you harbor hateful, insulting thoughts about your brothers and sisters in Christ, your relationships with them will suffer because it will affect your treatment of them, it will affect your actions. But these things will also ripple out from us in ways we can't always predict and understand. Because human sin disrupts the connection between God and his creation. This is the ultimate problem of sin. It makes it harder for us to connect with God. It makes it harder for all of creation to connect with God. And as a result... Creation doesn't work the way that it should. The point of the purification offerings, again, is to allow God's presence to safely enter into God's good creation. Now, on the cross, 
what Jesus does effectively allows for God's presence to be anywhere on, right? Jesus is the ultimate purification offering. We can think of it that way. And if Jesus is the ultimate purification offering, then all the world has been purified. God's presence can now be safely anywhere on earth in a way that was not possible, really, before that moment. But human sin still disrupts it. Still sends this contaminant of sin out into the world around us. And that's the other thing. You know, sin in the Bible is not just treated as like human actions or human decisions, right? It's treated as this, this thing which exists externally to us. This, this sort of emergent force. Um... This is sort of a high concept thing. So bear with me as, because I'm not going to explain it well. I know I won't. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, not, it's sort of like there, there are theories that um, um, small insects that live in collectives, right? Bees, ants, wasps have this sort of um, what they call an emergent intelligence, which, which it's, it, what it means is all these animals living together, collectively working together, each one sort of functions like like one point in a distributed nervous system, and so they sort of have this very primitive hive mind thing. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I'm not enough of an expert, but there is this theory that that they essentially function as one. That each one individually, when in in that group, they all sort of contribute to this sort of emergent thing that takes over. Sin in the Bible is treated kind of like that. Each individual human sin is not of much consequence on its own, but, but our collective sins give rise to this force which now exists externally to us and can act upon us and can act upon the world. And so sin is not just actions. Sin is this force which moves and, and almost has this will of its own. And, and this is definitely tied to the person of Satan, which is a murky figure in, in the Bible. But nonetheless very real. And so there is this sense in which evil takes a form of its own. Small acts of human sin which might be of no consequence taken individually, contribute to this greater force of evil which is at work in the world. It's like an emergent thing that, that results from the existence of all these small, small little individual sins, but they add up and they contribute to each other and they begin to exert pressure and to work in the world of their own volition almost. And so sin is treated like this thing which exists outside of us and spreads like a plague, like a disease. It can infect us. It can, it can bring us down. It can mutate and grow and leap from one place to another. And it's passed on from generation to generation. So when we talk about we don't need to feel guilt for our sin, this is part of what we mean. 
It's not just that, oh, we have made such terrible decisions. It's that we've been infected with this thing. Which has a will of its own. Which seeks to dominate us and destroy us. So we don't need to be ashamed. But we need to be aware. And we need to understand that sin has consequences. Whether it was an intentional sin or not. Whether it was a really bad sin or not. Whatever it is. We have to be aware. We have to be cautious. We have to be holy. Because holiness is what combats sin. And so the, the book of Leviticus is teaching people how to be holy. It's all about washing away the contamination of sin and doing what the people can to prevent further contamination. But again, it all points forward to Jesus, who is going to so perfectly fulfill these laws that his people will not need to follow them any longer. So as you read through Leviticus, read it through the lens of Jesus. Ponder how Jesus upheld these laws and how he fulfills them. And you will gain a much better appreciation for these texts if you do. That's all for this week, folks. We'll be back next week with a podcast on the book of Numbers.